Okay, very good. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, Esther chapter 2 and verses uh, 1 through 14 is what we want to look at tonight. Seeking Vashti's successor is what I've entitled, uh, or titled the message rather. And, uh, whoops, sorry, there we go. Theme, God's providential care for his people. Uh, we again are in uh, chapter 2. Ultimately, Esther does become the queen. That's where we're, we're headed. You know, there are some strange stories in the Bible, right? Yeah. Can you think of one right off the top? I mean, you, talk, you don't have to go very far in the book of Judges, right? You got some strange stories in the book of Judges. You got some strange stories like, you know, who, who's this guy that's writing to us about uh, wisdom? Uh, how many wives does he have? Uh, you know, uh, three? hundred? Concubines, seven hundred wives. I mean, it's kind of, Ecclesiastes. You know, it's kind of an interesting book. You ever studied Ecclesiastes? You know, it's the most philosophical book in the Bible, and yet people kind of wrestle, try to how to make sense of this. Well, you get to the end, it does make sense. There's, there's a lot of these things that are kind of interesting. You know, uh, all of these have a purpose in God's uh, redemption story. But on the face of it, sometimes it seems a little strange. And Esther is one of those stories. You know, Esther's a book doesn't even name God. Doesn't even have the name of God in the whole entire book. Uh, you know, as you're, as you're considering the canon, you might, you might really consider that. <laughs> Does this belong here? I mean, uh, we don't even have God's name in there. And yet, God's handiwork is written all over the book, as we have noted uh, the main player involved is, is seen providentially in God's providential care of his people in spite of themselves. Well, the setting takes place about 483 to 473 B.C. after the time of the Babylonian captivity, uh, which concluded in 538 B.C. with the decree of the Persian king Cyrus, uh, permitting the, the return of the Jews to their homeland. However, in disobedience, most of the Jews uh, remained in the land in Medo-Persia. And that provides some complications. You want to live in the context of the, the Gentiles, uh, there's going to be some pressures that are brought to bear that are not really in keeping with your set-apart calling. And we see that coming to the fore here. This is the setting for the book of Esther. So just uh, uh, FYI here, uh, we had the Three sieges of Jerusalem related to the Babylonian captivity, uh, captivity, 605, 597, and 586 B.C., and the 70-year Babylonian captivity. Now uh, we have the decree by Cyrus allowing the Jews to come back, 538. This is after that, the events in the book of Esther. These are the Jews that said, hey, we're going to stay uh, over here in what has now become Persia uh, after the Babylonian captivity. Well, the Persian king Ahasuerus ruled over a massive empire. And he gave a huge party for those in the capital city of Shushan, also called uh, Susa. And when the wine was flowing freely, uh, with all of his male guests in attendance, he invited the beautiful queen Vashti to come and make an appearance and show off her beauty to all of these inebriated men. Thought it was a good idea, kind of be the, you know, the, the climactic time of his big party. Well, Vashti refused to come, uh, which greatly angered the king. And so with counsel, the king had her permanently deposed from being queen and by law forbidden to ever come into his presence again. 
The message was then sent throughout the empire with the instruction that every man should be the master of his own house. Well, we pick up the story there tonight in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he's kind of running this whole thing through his mind here after some time. And uh, by the way, combining the information from chapter 1, verse 3, and also from chapter 2, verse 16 here, it would appear that about three or more years have passed since Vashti was deposed. So, So there was some time that went by here. And scholars believe that during this time, historically, as they look at it, actually Ahasuerus had been in a war with the Greeks. And therefore, it is, it is suggested that the search for a replacement for Vashti did not really begin in earnest until Ahasuerus had returned from fighting the Greeks in about 497 B.C. So, whatever the exact time frame, it would appear that after a considerable time lapse, King Ahasuerus was now kind of having second thoughts about deposing the beautiful Queen Vashti. He remembered what she had done, but also what had been decreed against her. Now, remember, the decree against her was permanent. It was, uh, it was law in accordance with the law of the Persians and the Medes. You know what the law of the Medes and the Persians meant, right? It could not be changed. You can't alter it. So this was binding. And yet you get the feeling that the king at this point felt some regret. Maybe there's a little bit of lesson here as far as anger. You know, remember he was just boiling with anger because she wouldn't show up. His ego was huge, of course. But uh, Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Again, 16.32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And then 25.28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. So uncontrolled anger is folly, and the path really of much regret. Rarely do people in great anger accomplish great things that they look back on later and say, man, I'm really glad I blew up and and, uh, you know, had an outrage there. That was really a good, productive, profitable day. <laughs> Rarely does that happen. Usually we have regret. I think the king is having some regret right here. Man, uh, I remember Vashti. Yeah, I remember the decree. You know, there's nothing that can be done about it. It's permanent. We put it in stone. The, the law of the Persians and the Medes. Well, verse 2. Then the king's servants, obviously, kind of, everybody's kind of aware of what's going on with the king. Those close to him, the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Trying to come up with some kind of a solution to the, uh, the, you know, how the king's feeling in terms of, boy, I wish I had that beautiful queen back. Throughout the book, by the way, it's evident that the king was consistently led along by his officials. It doesn't seem he was a great leader or much of an original thinker in some ways. His servants, seeing the situation, recommended a search be made now for a, a beautiful replacement for Queen Vashti, with emphasis on her on beautiful young virgins. You, you see nothing but the best for the king, right? Yeah. Verse 3. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, that is the fortress, uh, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women. And let 
beauty preparations be given them. So here's our plan. You know, we're going we're gonna to ferret out the beautiful young virgins throughout this massive kingdom. And we're going to bring them all here to the capital city. Again, uh, you know, here was the size of this kingdom. It was a huge, 127 provinces. And of course, here's the, here's the capital. Let, let them be brought from all over, you know, the whole kingdom. We're going to find out, find the beautiful ones and bring them here to, to the capital and put them in this, in this harem. Uh, and let this, uh, this eunuch who's in charge of those women uh, watch over them and, and let beauty preparations be given to them. They're already beautiful young virgins, but let beauty preparations then be given to them. And uh, so notice uh, it continues here, verse 4. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen. Okay, we need a new queen. Vashti is not coming back. We've already made the permanent rule. So uh, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So he signed off on this plan. Said, oh, that's a good idea. This is, this is great. Let's do it. Uh, note the king has many women in his harem, uh, but only one would be queen. Uh, she was to be the most beautiful a trophy wife for the king. That's really what Vashti was, and they're looking for a replacement for Vashti, the trophy wife. Verse 5, In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now here we're introduced to one of the main characters in the story, and he was a Jew named Mordecai. His ancestry is traced back to the tribe of Benjamin, uh, Mordecai is actually a Babylonian name uh, taken from the chief Babylonian god named Marduk. Uh, Mordecai was born in exile <clears throat> and given this pagan name. Uh, we don't know that he had a, uh, a Hebrew name, but this is kind of a, a pagan Babylonian name as far as background. Verse 6, a little bit of background. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured uh, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So Kish was evidently Mordecai's great-grandfather who was deported to Babylon in 597 along with uh, the king of Judah at that time, Jeconiah, uh, also uh, called uh, Jehoiachin or just Kaniah. Verse 7, And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, so it's his uncle's daughter, so that makes her his cousin. Right. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai, as I say, was actually Esther's cousin, evidently an older cousin. Esther was an orphan, and so Mordecai raised her as a daughter. And it says here, Esther's Hebrew name was Hadassah, meaning Myrtle. Uh, while uh, Esther uh, was her Persian name, meaning star, probably related to the deity Ishtar. Again, remember, they're living in a pagan land and became assimilated into that culture, which is even reflected in their names at this point. Well, Esther was young, lovely, and beautiful. What's not to like here? She, she was a natural standout. Verse 8, So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther was also was taken to the king's palace in the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. 
Now, we are not sure if this means that Esther was forcibly taken. Try to, you know, that word taken. Does that mean that she was kind of, oh man, we found a beautiful one. You're coming with us. Uh, We don't know if she was forcibly taken or whether she volunteered to go. You kind of like, well, what was the process here? We know the officials were looking for these beautiful women. Was it like, hey, if you're interested to be the king's wife, come and and volunteer? Or was, hey, you're coming with us? Uh, You have to realize this is pagan context, uh, not exactly a a democracy here. And uh, so who knows? The language in the text says the officers in the various provinces were to gather all the beautiful young virgins. We just don't know what the process of that gathering involved. Uh, So some say, uh, taken in verse 8, may suggest that beautiful as she was, Esther may not have had a real choice in the matter. I mean, probably had a reputation for her beauty. Uh, You know, there's a real emphasis on how, uh, what a beautiful woman she was. Well, exactly how it came about is not stated with precise details. So we really don't know uh, all the background there. But certainly we know that Esther did not fight it. Uh, Her demeanor all along is one of compliance. And so Esther, along with many other young women, were gathered and placed into the custody of this man named Haggai, who was a eunuch. Uh, who was the caretaker of the king's women. The story continues, verse 9. Now the young woman pleased him. And this is Haggai, the custodian of the women, the eunuch. Uh, The young woman, that's Esther, pleased him, and she obtained his favor. That's an interesting word that in in the providence of God, no pun intended, is placed in the text here. And we'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, the young woman, Esther, pleased him, and she, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance, which we think was a food allowance. Uh, then uh, seven choice maidservants were provided for her. How about that? Seven people waiting on me, hand and, feet, uh, hand and foot, as far as these beauty preparations I'm going through. I mean, this is some kind of elaborate stuff that's happening here. And she's getting a, a lot of attention. Seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Wow. Esther kind of had a way about her that immediately brought her into favor with this head guy who was in charge of the women. And he favored her by giving her special beauty preparation, seven choice maidservants, and the best of the accommodations. That's a lot of favor. All with the goal of making a beautiful person look as beautiful as possible. I mean, no expense spared here as far as the beauty preparations here. I mean, this is, we're all in. Now, what's interesting here is this word favor in this context in this book. Uh, the word favor is the Hebrew word hesed, which, you know, is in running for one of the most precious words in the Old Testament. Hesed, uh, you know, that, that rich Hebrew word hesed, uh, often translated as covenant loyalty. But is that such a rich word? We have kind of a hard time really just with an, an, an equivalent word being brought across to try to explain it or define it. In fact, uh, the King James translators initially used 14 different words to translate this word hesed. That's how rich it is. Uh, But it's a combination of love, faithfulness, covenant, commitment, grace, compassion, kindness, care, etc. Eventually, by the way, the uh, King James uh, translators ended up with loving kindness. Others translated as steadfast love, loyal love, covenant-keeping love. It's the idea of loving faithfulness. And I really like 
loving favor. Uh, it's translated as favor here. She obtained his favor. Uh, that, that combination of things that I'm, we're all, we all wrestle with, trying to, how, do you, how do you explain hesed? By the way, if you're looking at, at hesed in the Old Testament and you're going to the New Testament, of course, Greek, uh, but what would you say is maybe kind of close to a counterpart to hesed in the New Testament? Grace. grace. Yeah, grace would maybe be about as close as you're going to come. Uh, so anyway, but it's, it's, it's that idea here. In other words, uh, Hesed used here is emphasizing incredible favor. So strong that the only reasonable explanation is that the hand of God is behind it. Uh, here again, we see God's providential hand at work behind the scenes, bringing her into this favor of this uh, eunuch. Well, when it talks about her allowance, as I say, uh, that is translated in the ESV as her portion of food. And uh, we tend to think that's, that's the case. Um, Bible knowledge commentary. Esther could be contrasted with Daniel, who refused to eat the things from the king's table. Uh, because the food would include items considered unclean by Jewish law. Apparently, Esther had no qualms about the food she ate. She certainly did not set herself apart as Daniel had done. And that's true. Again, remember that in view are a compromised people who are out of the will of God and refusing to go back to the land of promise as they were instructed to do. And uh, just think about this. Uh, They go back to the land of promise. There they could live out their separated calling as God's chosen people, as as God intended them to do. Instead, these Jews who remained in the land had kind of grown a little bit comfortable. They kind of had gotten a little cozy with the world here in this pagan context. And in that context, there's a lot of compromise that we see in place here. Well, verse 10. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Well, there's no way you're going to stand up and say, you know what, I can't eat that food. Why? Well, um, I don't feel like it. Uh, Especially, I mean, if you're hiding your identity, um, what kind of a testimony are you for for the God of Israel? I mean, they don't even know you're a Jew. They don't even know that you know anything about the God of Israel. You're hiding your identity to such an extent, they don't even know. There's no testimony there. And Mordecai had uh, told her, don't reveal it, don't reveal it. She had a secret. She hadn't told anybody, namely that her, about her family heritage, the Jewish people group to which she belonged. And again, Mordecai was totally in on this. In fact, he is the one that's behind it, uh, charging her to keep it a secret. <clears throat> By the way, this is a, an early hint in the book that evidently there was some concern about uh, anti-Semitism. That uh, if you bring this out, it may be used against uh, perhaps me, Mordecai. Say he's a pretty high uh, position in the court here, in in, the, in relationship to the king's palace, and maybe he's saying, "Boy, if this gets out, uh, this is not going to be good." Uh, whatever his reasoning was, he's in, telling her, uh, charged her not to reveal it. So he's talking very strongly to her. And, you know, this is kind of a reflective, I think, in terms of the Jews' experience in history uh, during the times of the Gentiles. They always kind of have this uneasiness. 
you know, the Jews in America, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. I mean, how are the Jews feeling these days, especially in our larger cities? Is there a little uneasiness with the Jews, do you think? Oh, I think so. Anti-Semitism is always kind of just hidden under there. It could have an outbreak at any time. And they have experienced this through the years. Well, you see that kind of unease here. Uh, don't, don't bring it out. This, we don't want any trouble here. We just want to you know, do well for ourselves here. Verse 11. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So he was concerned. He was concerned about this. Uh, you understand, if it turned out that Esther was not selected to be the queen, she would probably spend most of her life in isolation with the other women in the harem. Uh, she would forever be denied a normal family life. You see, you couldn't just resign from the harem and say, I quit. <laughs> you just couldn't do that. You just couldn't walk away from the king's harem. Uh, I mean, this was, after all, a pagan dictatorship where you could be killed at the whim of the king for just almost anything. Verse 11, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation appointed. Six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Good night. I mean, everything was done with incredible excess. No expense spared. Each girl beautified themselves for 12 months in preparing for uh, their interview, if you will, with the king. Six months with the oil of myrrh, which was kind of a sort of fragrant gummy substance. And then six months uh, with perfume. Uh, They must have gone over to the king, by the way, smelling like a perfume factory. I mean, just think about this. You're having a whole year, you know, having the perfume bath all day. (laughs) I don't know what they're doing. This is kind of a funny story. Back in a more legalistic age, some fundamentalists thought that makeup was a sign of sinfulness. Some of you older folks might remember this. Some people kind of had that perspective. J. Vernon McGee tells this kind of humorous story. I found it rather amusing. He says, a dear lady once came to me when I was a pastor in downtown Los Angeles, California. She thought that some of the girls were using too much makeup. She did not think a Christian ought to use it. And she put me out on a limb when she asked me what I thought about the subject. I said, well, it depends on the woman. Uh, Some women, he says, would be greatly improved if they used a little makeup. And I think we should do all the best we can with what God has given us. She took that personally, he says. And then he says, and I want to add that she had reason to. (laughs) (laughs) Only McGee could get away with this kind of stuff. Anyway, funny. On this subject, McGee was also known to say, if the barn needs painting, then paint it, right? Anyway, kind of said that many times. But Well, in context, these women were doing a lot of painting. Uh, They were doing a lot of perfuming. They were doing everything they could to beautify themselves. But it was really all to one end, like the Bible knowledge commentary. It's so funny. I read these commentaries. Most of them just shy away from it. We get to these messy verses here. They don't want to talk about this because it really is kind of messy. But the Bible knowledge commentary, they they tell it like it is. Uh, Esther was not in a beauty contest simply to win the king's affections. These women were being prepared to have sexual relations with the king. I mean, that's what's going on here, folks. That was exactly the deal. We, We don't have to wonder about it because of what the next verses say. Sounds kind of crude. Doesn't it? And so antithetical to what God's people are to be about in terms of our separated calling 
And uh, so some have tried to uh, really soften this and get around this and say, well, no, I don't think there was anything like that going on. But again, I think the Bible Knowledge Commentary is right when they say, God protected and used Esther and Mordecai in spite of the fact that they were not living according to the law commanded by God to the people of Israel. By law, Esther was not to marry a pagan or have sexual relations with a man who was not her husband. And yet this was the purpose of her being included in the harem. I mean, that's what's going on here. Verse 13, thus prepared each young woman went to the king. And she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. So, so each woman, uh, thus fully prepared, after all these elaborate preparations to beautify herself, uh, to the best of her ability, would then take whatever clothing, adornments, jewels, whatever it was, with her as she went to see the king. Verse 14. In the evening she went. And in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of of Shahash, Shahashgaz. There's a name, if you're looking for a name, Michael. I don't know, maybe you've already chosen the name, but there, there's one that's kind of free. Uh, what a name, Shahashgaz. Yes, okay. Uh, the king's eunuch who kept the concubine. So here's another eunuch watching another uh, group of women. Uh, she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So without being explicit, it is pretty clear what was going on here. In the evening, they went to see the king. And in the morning, they returned. What do you think they were doing all night? Playing cards? I don't think so. Uh, each one of these girls, in effect, had a, a one-night stand with this pagan king. Apparently, there were two harems. As noted earlier, Haggai was the eunuch in charge of the women in, in the women's quarters that were being prepared you know, for, to be interviewed by the king. Uh, these were potential women for the king. However, having spent a night with the king, then they were considered one of his concubines uh, to be used as he desired. Shahazgag, uh, the other eunuch, was in charge of the second harem, as it says here, the, the second house of the women. Uh, after they returned from the king, they, they were then under his charge. Now, these women uh, potentially might only see the king once. And forever after that, be relegated to living as a concubine in the women's quarters. They would not see the king again unless he delighted in her, unless he called for her by name. Such a life. Such a life. So the question is this. How in the world could Esther, a supposed woman of God, do this? That's a good question, right? Yep, that's a good question. Uh, in fact, it's such a good question. One of the commentators, I have quite a bit of respect for this guy, by the way, says, says, quote, knowing Esther's character, we can be sure she would have refused to do anything contrary to God's law. That mm. seems to defy the obvious. I mean, I'd like to protect Esther, too, as far as her character. I'd like to do that, too. But it just seems to me there's some undeniable realities going on here. And, like I say, many commentators just kind of skip over this messy part of the story. You know, uh, you always think about messy stories like Lot. You know Lot. You know Lot living in Sodom. What's he doing there? Lot? You're supposed to be living a separated life. What are you doing? Well, clearly she was breaking many of God's laws by going along with this. Daniel refused to stop 
praying, no matter the consequences. I mean, everybody knew where Daniel was. Nobody knew where she was. She didn't even know her identity. Daniel stood up, refused to eat the king's food. None of that with her. We see none of this with either Mordecai or Esther. They were living in compromise, not really taking a stand at this point, even to the point where nobody really knew who they were. Even their very identity as as the people of God was hidden. You know what I like about the Bible? It tells it all, warts and all. I love that about the Bible. Uh, It is real. It is truth. Lewis Berry Chafer said this. I love this quote. The Bible is not such a book as as man would write if he could because it condemns him. Neither is it a book that he could write if he would because it surpasses him. How true. The Bible is not a book we would write if we could And it is not a book we could write if we would. I think that's true. But here's the main point in the whole book of Esther. In spite of the unfaithfulness of his chosen people, Israel, God ever remains faithful. He is Hesed faithful. Behind the scenes, even when his people are not. Thus we see God's providential faithfulness in the shadows of Esther. All the way through. Indeed, this is a book in which God is the main character, even though he's not named even one time in the book. At the end of the day, history is really his story. It's really all about what God is doing in and through his people, often in spite of his people, not because of them. All the glory truly belongs to God. You know, sometimes, you know, people, they have replacement theology when it comes to Israel. Like, Israel's been so unfaithful, even to the point of rejecting their Messiah. Surely God is done with them. That really underrates the the, the character of God and his faithfulness. His hesed faithfulness. It's interesting that the word hesed is interjected into this context here. Jeremiah 31. This is uh, the New Covenant passage here as far as the greater context. Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off All the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. You know what God is saying? It's impossible for me to cast off Israel. You know, you read the Old Testament and all that they went through. You come to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And what does God say in Malachi 3.6? We know that. I am the Lord. I do not change. Well, there's a context of that statement in Malachi 3.6 because it continues on. I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Esther is really a story, not so much about Mordecai, not so much about Esther, but about the the faithful God of Israel who is faithful in spite of them. That's what this story is about. No matter what Israel does, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Esther is testimony of this reality. The destiny of Israel is ultimately all about God and his character. Uh, He is the God of Hesed faithfulness, loyal covenant faithfulness. He is the Lord. He does not change. Boy, I'm really glad for that, by the way. Aren't you? I mean, I'm not always as faithful as I should be. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on God and his covenant faithfulness. 
And as we are the people of God, we are secure in that. Okay, we're going to stop there tonight, and we'll pick it up next time at verse 15, chapter 2. But let's have our closing song, and then I'll close us in a word of prayer.